Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Timothy Shank. Timothy is a historian at George Washington University and a co-editor at Descent Magazine. Timothy and I discuss the book that President Obama wrote in the 90s but never published, which Timothy was able to get his hands on. We discuss Obama's early influences, his critique of the left, and his critique of expertise. We talk about how Obama's views have changed from the 90s to today. We talk about the legacy of Bayard Rustin, a civil rights leader and writer who was a hero to both Timothy and myself. We talk about how political parties used to build long-term coalitions and win many elections in a row, and why neither party is able to do that today. We talk about popularism and its critics, and we talk about the midterm elections. So without further ado, Timothy Shank. Okay, Timothy Shank, thanks so much for coming on my show. Thanks for having me. So we're going to get into your new book, Realigners, and some of the interesting and very relevant material in there considering the elections coming up. But before we do that, can you give my audience a sense of who you are, how you came to be interested in the topic of coalition building in politics and in the, in the history of that? Sure. So I'm a history professor at GW. I'm also co-editor of Dissent, which is the longest running Democratic Socialist magazine in the United States. And I came to the subject of this question of realignment, majority building, just by paying attention to a lot of the conversation around the crisis of democracy that folks, especially in left-wing progressive circles, have been having in the time of Trump and after. And it just seemed to me that alongside all the conversations about norms, about institutions coming from the center, and then some of the more radical calls for policies that could just reform American life. The thing that was missing in all the talk about the crisis of democracy was what is actually essential to democracy, which is building majority coalitions. That's really the essence of the thing. And I thought that we were overdue for a deep dive into how these coalitions emerge, because you look around us now, it seems to me that one of, not the only factor, but one of the major problems that we're facing today is that neither party is able to build a durable coalition that can push through lasting change, which I think contributes to the weirdness of our moment, where it feels simultaneously like the system is falling apart, but also that nothing's ever really going to change. And I think that, kind of spoiler alert for our main argument of the book, if there's a shot for getting for coming up with a really democratic solution to this crisis of democracy, it's going to be because someone can figure out how to build one of those more lasting coalitions that can push through meaningful change for ordinary Americans. Yeah, so this is a, a major point that you make in the book, which is that we've had many periods in American history going back to you know, the early 19th century where one party has been able to, for at least, you know, a period of maybe 10 or 20 years, maybe sometimes even more, really have a durable majority and win election after election after election. We haven't had a period like that since, basically since FDR. And um, so I'm curious, why is that? What's changed structurally that has prevented us from having that in in the recent past? So there's a bunch of different factors. And it's important to know that relevant stuff about the resorting of coalitions in the United States, you know, it's not limited to Americans alone. 
right? So the migration of working class voters away from parties of the left or center left, that's pretty much a global phenomenon. That also means that sort of the emergence of these right wing populist coalitions, also something that has happening around the world. But there's one transition that happens, really, really crucial one that takes place starting in the 1950s, a little bit more in the Depression era, but really beginning in the 50s and accelerating into today, which is the replacing of an old type of partisan machine politician who cares more at the end of the day about distributing patronage and just winning elections so that you can give your constituents stuff and sometimes even just give your friends jobs. That starts to give way to a new type of activist. One political scientist, great one, James Hugh Wilson, publishes a book in 1960. He calls these folks amateurs. He says that these are sort of college educated activists who care more about principle than about patronage. Now, Wilson was focused on Democrats at the time, but there's the same process going on in the Republican Party. And a big part of the story about the making of modern American politics is the driving out of those old machine politicians and the replacement with these principal cause-oriented amateur activists. And the irony here is that by our own time, those activists help give rise to their own type of machine, sort of permanent political class that just keeps on ticking no matter who wins in it at the polls. What really counts for them is that they keep their base either on the right or on the left. They keep them engaged. They keep them clicking. They keep them reading. They keep them donating. And it means that the incentives for winning elections just aren't there in the same way that they used to be. And I'm not saying that this is the whole part of the story. But I think it's a really important part that anyone who cares about politics, which I'm assuming is most of the people listening to this, needs to take into account. Mm. Yeah, this calls to mind the, the kind of renewed interest in the debate over popularism, so-called popularism over the past year. David Shore has sort of been the face of that. And he was on this podcast maybe a year and a, a, year and a half ago. I've also had Ezra Klein on this show. And there's this debate over this philosophy of popularism, which is, you know, should the Democratic Party, in order to win, pivot its appeal more to the median voter, right? Basically, should we, should Democrats pull the room, the room being, you know, America, see what people like and shift its opinions towards those issues and de-emphasize or decrease the salience of issues on, you know, where the left-wing position is actually unpopular. Now, it strikes me like in an earlier era to say there was a debate over popularism might not even make any sense because electoral politics was probably like synonymous with popularism. But so is this a consequence of the trend that you are describing here with the, the rise of quote amateurs or your, I mean, that, that sounds a little bit pejorative, but like activists, right? that's a little bit more yeah. neutral. These people who treat politics yeah. seriously as a cause rather than just as a way to make a living. Now, I, I right. think that's so absolutely like, right. Sorry, right. go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. You got well, that. I was just going to say that there's an extent to which the book is providing a kind of history for the making of this permanent political class that Shore talks about as in some ways they're powering the Democratic Party in it today and in some ways they're holding it back, at least at the polls. But I don't think it makes sense to say that there's only, I, well, I consider myself, just for context, I call myself a left-wing popularist. And I do that because I think that there are multiple majorities out there to be made at any given time. There's not one center to the electorate. There are at least you can make different types of median voters depending on the issues that you push to the forefront. So there is one strategy that just says, look at what's popular in the polls and go after that. But there's another that says, listen, you can polarize the electorate along different lines and that they can make different coalitions, which will be conducive to different types of policies. And so instead of just saying, like, let's go after 
whatever the top 10 items on the polling list are, you could say, what is a broader vision that's animating this? And to my mind, a sort of strong economic message that deals carefully with those cultural issues, which can divide a coalition rooted in the working class, can has a greater potential for pushing through lasting change than a sort of alternative coalition you could imagine, which might be just a save democracy first, will be popularist because we're making a new majority that stretches from Elizabeth Warren on one side to Elizabeth Cheney on the other. I think that there is a case to be made that that type of central strategy might in fact work at the polls. I just don't know if it's a long-term policy agenda. And I think you could get similar results just in terms of winning elections by pursuing a more class-forward economic strategy that also dealt with cultural issues in a way that didn't actively repel important parts of the coalition that you're seeking to bring into the majority. Mm. Yeah. So, so this brings us right into your, not quite discovery, but sort of amplification of Barack Obama's lost manuscript, the book he never published that he wrote in the 90s with, was it Robert Fisher? Yeah, his best friend, a former economics professor, his best friend at Harvard and a former economics professor. Yes. As you wrote in your opinion piece there, can you talk about how you found this lost manuscript and why you are the guy that's like telling the world that there's like this whole book Obama wrote that never came out? It's really strange. (laughs) And there was a, I had like, I got my hands on this manuscript in 2019 and I was been telling it to my friends since then. And they almost like couldn't believe it when I would tell them. And I had no idea if anyone else would care as much as I did, because I've just been going nuts thinking about this thing for the last three years. But it's what's the person who discovered it is uh, Dave Garrow, an absolutely brilliant historian. One of his books on Martin Luther King is right behind me has a massive biography of Barack Obama that came out in 2017. In that almost 1,500-page book, including footnotes, there are about five pages talking about this manuscript that Barack Obama wrote with his best friend at the time at at Harvard, Robert Fisher. It gives a sort of brief summary of the thing. Now, I think the problem that Garrow encountered is that this discussion of the book came, of Obama's manuscript, came in the middle of a gigantic book that had just a lot of other stuff going on in it. And that was published in 2017, when I think that the media class was just a lot more concerned with what was going on with Donald Trump's Twitter feed than anything else. Mm -hmm. And I think that American liberals, progressives, Democrats, I don't know if they were ready for a really serious conversation about Barack Obama and his legacy yet. I think that they wanted the guy who wasn't Donald Trump, the one who stood for the best of their America and who had been just sort of his legacy was being tarnished by this guy who's making an ass of himself on Twitter every day. And I think the passage of time combined with an explanation of what sort of deep dive into the ideas that are at the core of this manuscript and an account of why that matters today. I think that's really why the sort of account of the book lands in a different way. So when I'm just send an email to Garrow in 2019 asking, hey, like, it seems like there's something interesting here going with this manuscript. Can you pass it along to me? He incredibly graciously takes care of that right away. And all of a sudden, I'm reading this document that just to me is mind blowing. Because the shorthand version that I would tell my friends at the time was, so it turns out that Barack Obama was a Bernie bro 30 years ahead of his time, like pretty surprising with this class forward left strategy that he's pursuing. Although, as you know, as you well know, there's a strategy that has deep roots, especially on the black left, saying that Mm -hmm. if you want to push forward transformative economic change that lifts up not just white Americans, but African Americans, Americans of all races, that this is the way to go about it. And that the modern version goes back to Bayard Rustin and has a lot of important descendants before it gets down to Obama. 
Yeah. So I, I feel like the, you'd be surprised how, how, how many discoveries you can make if you actually read every page of the books that people pretend to read. I know it's kind just, of frustrating, but makes it yeah. easier for us, I guess. Yeah. To actually read yeah. the damn book. It's what I tell my students too. Right. Um, yeah. So, so in the New York times summary of this lost manuscript that you gave, you're, you're basically getting a window into what Barack Obama thought decades before he roughly two decades before he became president. And there are a lot of references to Bayard Rustin's philosophy in in your summary of his book. Um, Bayard Rustin is someone that I, I I have a very deep admiration for. And I one of the one of the few historical figures from that era that I can really say I've I think I've read every word he ever committed to paper. It's fantastic. He's um, he's the hero of my book too, as you know. Yeah. So were you drawing a connection between Rustin's philosophy and Barack Obama's thoughts or was Barack and or were Barack and Robert Fisher explicitly name dropping him in that book? So the person that they're more concerned with is William Julius Wilson, who's this brilliant social scientist who's teaching at the University of Chicago at the time that Obama is a community organizer there and who has is writing in series of books, also articles, making the case for this Rustin-esque multiracial coalition rooted in economics. The through line there is that Wilson himself is explicit in crediting his strategy to Rustin. He's saying that Rustin is, Wilson's saying like, I'm coming up with the updated 1980s version with more social scientific and political science backing of a strategy that Rustin got to first. So he's a sort of key middle middle figure along the way, as is uh, Harold Washington, who is mayor of Chicago when Barack Obama is there. And today, in a way, sort of just as Bayard Rustin is often remembered almost exclusively for his identity rather than for what he actually said, rather than for his ideas, mm-hmm. think that Harold Washington, when he's talked about today, he's just described as the first black mayor of Chicago whose mayorality was consumed by racial conflict because of the sort of obdurate racism from Chicago Dem- white Chicago Democrats on the city council at the time. And like that is true. But it ignores the fact that Washington was a strong and compelling advocate of a type of coalition politics that also comes very much out of the Rustin tradition. Now, that it didn't work in his morality, that it was undermined by racism, was something that the young Barack Obama paid close attention to. But the overall vision was something that was floating around, not just in Bayard Rustin's head, but in people who were crucial to Obama's political and intellectual development. Yeah. So I just want to summarize and crystallize this a little bit for the audience. What we're talking about here is a philosophy and a politics that prioritizes class inequality as the main issue. That, you know, Bayard Rustin, he organized the March on Washington at which Martin Luther King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. But the the full title of the March on Washington was the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And him and A. A. Philip Randolph, they were socialists. I think, I mean, I think, I think in Bayard Rustin's case, at the very least, had been a Marxist. Former communist, um, former member of like the young yeah. communist party. Right. So we're talking about a philosophy here that comes out of Marxism and socialism. Yeah. And like at the time in the 1960s, he's drinking buddies with Michael Harrington, who's going to go on to be one of the founders of Democratic Socialists of America. Yeah. This is like firmly right. rooted in the left. But it's a, it's a class first politics, not a race first politics, although race consumed it during the civil rights movement. Once those achievements were made in, you know, in roughly 19. 65 through through 67, Bayard immediately turned the vast majority of his focus to class. Now that we've destroyed Jim Crow, 
And this is where he started, this is where a rift started to form between him and others on the left, uh, certainly the Black Power movement and and all the uh, apologists sort of for them, between whether the new fight was class or whether race was the eternal fight. And and what you're saying here is Obama was much more inspired by Bayard, Bayard Rustin's philosophy and, and vision in, in the early 90s. Absolutely. It's all over the manuscript where he just explicitly discusses this sort of race-first politics that he says has a lot to admire about it as a matter of theory and for its moral conviction, but that he says is a dead end politically. It's not the only political dead end that he talks about in the manuscript because he goes after liberals who are counting on the courts just to deliver victories for them on a consistent basis. He talks about a left that he says is hung up on a lot of old policy ideas that just might not work. But sort of mm. core focus of the book is making the case for this Rustin to Harold Washington to William Julius Wilson inspired version of coalition politics. Okay, so some other elements I, I want to ask you about there. You say Barack Obama was, he was against the replacement of de- winning elections with judicial fiat, right? Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? What did he mean by that? And where did that, what was the rationale for that in his mind? So a recurring theme in the manuscript and in pretty much all of Obama's writings up until he gets to the presidency, not saying it disappears when he's president, but when he's coming up with his own political worldview, something that pops up again and again and again is this idea that he's the idealist who's looking for a realistic path to change. He wants to push forward as aggressively as he can in the world as it is. He doesn't want to become an apologist for the status quo, but he also doesn't want to be an outsider who's calling for change that's never going to happen. And he's always going to, in the manuscript and a lot of his early writings, he's going to position himself as a critic of the left from within the left. He says that I share your goals, I share your ends, but we have to be smart about how we get there. And that same approach is on display when he talks about the courts. He says, actually explicitly cites Roe v. Wade as an example, says in so many words, I support abortion rights. I think that the decision was correctly decided, but that any victory that comes to the left from the courts is living on borrowed time. Because if Republicans keep winning, they're going to keep appointing judges and progressive victories are just not going to be durable unless they're backed up by popular opinion. So we can push for legal reform. That's good. This is stuff that we should do. But ultimately, politics comes first. And this is something that actually Obama, he puts his money where his mouth is, because after he graduates from Harvard Law School, something that would have been a easy option for him would be clerking on the Supreme Court, right? It was a natural path for somebody was the first black president of the Harvard Law Review, absolute star, would have been easy. But he tells his, I think, then girlfriend, uh, Michelle Robinson, future Michelle Obama, tells her, if you're going to change the world, you're not going to be doing it as you're not going to do it by clerking on the Supreme Court. Why? Because he says that politics is ultimately going to be the determinant here, not the law. That a bolder political vision rather than a more clever legal strategy is the ultimate path to change. Hmm. That's interesting. There's another aspect of, of his manuscript as described in the New York Times piece I want to ask you about, which is you kind of mention in passing that he had a critique of handing government over to experts. Yeah. What did that argument consist of? So one part of it is reflected in the civil rights debate because part of his account, uh, and there's an extended account in the manuscript of where he thinks the civil rights movement went wrong after the 1960s. And he says that this sort of government by judges gets conflated with this sort of technocratic turn generally so that when integration, sort of the rules for integration are being imposed by the courts rather than being decided upon by elected officials, he says that's going to be a recipe for backlash. But he says that at the time he links it up with sort of a broader concern for a left that's just going to say, all right, centralized government office in Washington, you can decide what the rules of the game are going to be. As someone who's working as a community organizer comes out of that background, Obama's going to want to figure out a way 
to try and mediate between a right that he says is too concerned with individuals, a left that he says is too concerned with these top-down state projects, and figuring out a way that the government can nurture communities. Communities that he thinks can't, should, they should be open to change. They shouldn't be these sort of stifling, homogenous things. But he says, ultimately, none of us, no person is an island. We're not living alone. If we're going to have meaningful lives, and it's going to be by building communities that thrive together. So that combined with, you know, he's writing in 1991, the Soviet Union is in the process of collapsing. There's a sense that a left that's just committed to big government isn't going to get anything done. You know, so obviously the Democrats of 1991 are not the Stalinists of 1950, but to the extent that the collapse of the USSR raises a lot of questions about markets more generally, he's saying that the left will be wise to take those concerns on. Mm. So how, if at all, did Obama's views change from the 1990s to his run for president? So I think that there's a lot of consistency on the level of electoral strategy. But what you do see by 2008 is a real narrowing of policy ambitions. He's open, he says in the manuscript, to the idea that, oh, maybe we need to have government control of the financial sector to a significant degree. Universal health care, that's obviously fine. He's all open to this idea of a really, really expansive role for government. That narrows as time goes by. But this sort of interesting move that he's making in 2004 and 2008, he doesn't give up on the idea of transformation altogether. What he says is that with a few smart changes in policy, just a few tweaks here and there, we actually can have transformative change. That it doesn't have to be this comprehensive overhaul of the government, but rather the right moves made on questions about economic policy, healthcare, you run down the list, can give us a society that we should all that we could all be proud of. So transformation is possible through this kind of incremental change. So that's the change on the policy front. But I think that the broader political project is still there. This idea that through an aggressive, through a bold political vision, Democrats are capable of wooing back those white working class voters who began drifting away from the party after the 1960s and building a lasting coalition. The interesting move that he's making, though, by 2008 is he, if you're a moderate, if you're inclined toward a sort of more centrist perspective, you could see Barack Obama's promising a return to the Eisenhower years, right? He's saying like, oh, we'll get back to the center. We'll be reasonable. We'll be rational. If you're on the left, you could say, no, this isn't a return to Eisenhower. This is a return to the New Deal. And he sort of leaves that open when he's running in 2008. But even in 2012, so this the first term has been less of an outrage by a lot of what it perceives as compromises to Wall Street, a lot of ways that uh, sort of successes that they think were, were within reach that Obama gave up on. But in a tough re-election climate, Obama's political advisors, David Axelrod talks about this in his memoir. There's a moment in 2011 where Obama's really frustrated, doesn't like that his poll numbers are in the tank. He doesn't like where his presidency is going. And he comes up with this list of all the stuff that he wants to talk about on the campaign trail. So Barack Obama's guide to getting his groove back. It's everything from Guantanamo to gay marriage, just run down the list. And according to Axelrod, the advisors, they sit down, they listen, and they say, like, this is all good stuff. But if you want to win against stiff economic headwinds in 2012, then the only chance you have is to cast yourself as a champion of a beleaguered middle class fighting off vulture capitalists from the right personified by Mitt Romney. So that's basically the strategy that the Obama campaign puts into effect in 2012. My favorite instance of this is a tagline for an ad that ran in Ohio, a state that Obama carried in 2012, which after describing sort of all the terrible things that Mitt Romney hedge fund man did, the tagline for the ad is Mitt Romney, not one of us. And the idea mm-hmm. is that this economic forward campaign is what allows Barack Obama to tell the people of Ohio, I'm on your side, Mitt Romney's not, I'm one of you, Mitt Romney's not. And that message works enough to against some pretty stiff economic resistance of re-elect Barack Obama after a similar program had put him in with the most significant Democratic majority of any president on his side of the aisle since Lyndon Johnson. Yeah. And Mitt Romney had just enough of this like kind of country club 
vibe. Yep. That I think that strategy just made a lot of sense and resonated. Yeah, he leaned with into me. it in a way that looks awful in retrospect, just like Hillary yeah. Clinton leaning to the culture war in 2016 looks ridiculous in retrospect. Yeah. But, um, okay. So I've encountered this opinion that really the way to affect change in politics is to first pass legislation, cram it through however, however you can, and then wait to be vindicated by time and by shifting public opinion. This is, well, I know for a fact, Ibram X. Kendi argues this in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Towards the end, he has a section on why moral suasion doesn't work, right? Why the right strategy is not to persuade the public that X is really the right way to go and sort of wait till it becomes a popular policy and then pass it. The right strategy is to pass it today, even if only 20 or 30% of people agree with it, and then wait till it bears fruit and becomes, you know, obviously people are um, grateful for having had it and that will be the persuasion, right? So I'm curious. I mean, I think people have some sort of pet historical examples where they this may have actually been true. So I'm curious, what is your take on that as a historian of coalition building? Is that a sound idea or, or, or is it the case that there's just a few exceptions where that's true that prove a rule? Well, what's your take? Well, on so that? the historian Killjoy just wants to, has to point out at the start that this is a really hard thing to judge because we don't have good, reliable polling from before basically 1950, right? So we have a pretty limited sample size that we can draw upon and that a lot of times people get sloppy where they say like, oh, there was a poll in some other period that said this other kind of slightly related thing. You know, getting reliable polls today is hard enough. So asking for the sort of comprehensive set of measurements of public opinion going back over a century plus, you know, that's a really, really, really big ask. But I would say, actually, there's a bit of an echo of what Kendi said in, as you know, what Rustin argued about how political change should be pursued, but important differences too. So Rustin's argument was that you didn't have to focus on sort of terrifying white people into this moral awakening, what you would have to do is change the institutions and wait for attitudes to catch up. So he says, if you alter the balance uh, the balance of power within society, if you lift up workers of all races, this is going to be the best path forward for promoting race relations in the country. So change institutions and then ideas follow. The difference is that Rustin was also concerned with having those institutional changes be popular in the first instance. And to me, just pragmatically speaking, that seems to make a lot more sense because let's say you go all in on your policy, you say like dent the torpedoes, full steam ahead on whatever your 20% policy is. Well, back the risk of backlash is real. And if you're even if you don't lose at the next election, you will go out eventually. And if that policy hasn't made itself popular in time, then the first thing that the other side is going to do, the first thing that a Republican president is going to do is kick it out, right? So the opportunity for it to put, if you want change to be lasting, then it has to, one, probably it's going to come through with a durable majority. But two, the more popular it is, the harder it is to overturn. So something like protections in Obamacare, because that was legitimately popular, it can stand the test of time. Other stuff, whether it's just pushed through, pushed through via executive order, therefore easy to repeal, or just never popular to begin with, that can be pushed to the side. So it's never this sort of the really, really abstract, you know, do you want to die on a hill for principle? It's never that simple. You have to be smarter about this. You have to focus on policies that can last so that they can eventually change attitudes. So is one reason why we fail to see these enduring long-term 
coalitions in our lifetimes is one reason because, you know, the science of running a campaign has gotten better and access to information is higher. It's like if it's 1930 and you're running for president, I have to imagine your information about what will pull well with the public has to be super incomplete to compared to what it is today. And you just sort of have to rely on your gut. Whereas now you can pay pollsters to and focus group testers and, and all that. So is it just the case that campaigns in general are getting better and therefore it's just tougher to win by a large margin? So I think that there are two reasons why I'm not sure I buy the theory. So example number one, I would say 2016, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. So Donald Trump, I think, comes up with a strategy basically based on what he sees on TV, whereas Hillary Clinton has the most sophisticated <laughs> campaign operation that money can buy. You know, if this were 2012, right after Obama's win, this is the age of sort of the victory lab, the Democrats are running the campaigns and they're in charge, Democrats are destiny, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'd be really inclined to buy that argument that the experts have turned campaigning into a science. But Donald Trump smashing his way into the White House over all the nerds on the Clinton team makes, and I say this as a fellow nerd, but it makes me like really skeptical that they're able to delete, that campaigning has turned into a science more than an art. The other thing I want to say is if you just look at the past, like, yes, there are long periods of American history where you have these strong majority coalitions, but there are other times, consistent periods when there's no lasting majority. Uh, Before our own moment, the Gilded Age, so roughly 1876 into 1896, it's a 20-year period where elections are very narrowly divided. Control of Congress, control of the presidency goes back and forth. There's another period also where the parties were polarized around some really divisive social cultural issues. At the time, it was the legacy of the Civil War, also the place of Protestants and Catholics, also the place of immigrants in the United States. But the fact that we have gone through those these periods of intensely divided elections when campaigning was a lot more primitive than it is today, and the fact that our best and brightest on the Democratic side can't seem to deliver reliable victories... Wow, Republicans who there was an effort to portray the Trump campaign as a vindication for the campaign whizzes behind the scenes. But I think that was much more just about a what happened to be a really brilliant message for winning elections rather than something that just emerged out of the like latest lab science combined. That makes me think that with the right strategy, no amount of campaign super technology can guarantee a victory. Which again, as a lefty, it would be nice because I feel like my side should have the advantage in there. It just doesn't seem like the strategy works. Mm. So here's one line of argument. One line of argument would say that uh, it's actually a good thing that we don't have multi-decade quasi one-party rule because as nice as it would be to be able to maybe pass some legislation and have it stick, on the other hand, part of the point of democracy and having multiple parties is the sort of healthy discharge of energy and grievance that comes with the election, right? Like every four or eight years, the party switches, half the country gets to feel a victory, the other half doesn't, but they know based on the recent past that they'll probably be in power in the next 12 years. And at some level, maybe that releases a kind of pressure valve of anger that that would boil over into something truly dangerous if one side was out of power for 20 or 30 years. Does that theory hold any water for you? So there's a part of it that makes sense. You don't want another side to feel like it's so defeated that it can never win and it's going to give up on democracy. I just The two objections I would have to it, one is it turns out that there is one side that even when it wins feels like it's so defeated and might have to give up on democracy, at least mm-hmm. if you accept that the ballots that are cast are like actually reliable and not just imposed by you know Dominion voting machines and some unholy alliance of Hugo Chavez and the Chinese regime or something. 
right? So a world where January 6th occurs is one where the sort of that worst case scenario of the other side refusing to accept results and revolting against the system itself seems to me it's already here, which raises the question of what we're going to do about it. And I think raises the stakes for Democrats to figure out a strategy that can consistently put them in office. Never, you're never going to be guaranteed victory. Certainly, they're going to be stomped at the polls, all indications suggest, this November. I don't think that there's any magic words that they could say to change things. But putting aside that question, this is where just the left part of the left-wing popularist in me comes out. I just think that the real inequalities of the country, inequalities of money, inequalities of power, and that this would be a better country if we were able to redistribute power and money accordingly. This gets me back, actually, to sort of the goal that the young Barack Obama set for himself when he was going to politics. He says, why did I give up community organizing in exchange for this sort of elect, trying to win elected office? And he says that ultimately, I decided that the way to bring change to the people I was working with in public housing projects in Chicago, these people who are dealing with joblessness, poverty, sky high cancer rates that are a product of growing up in just sort of toxic environment, like literally toxic environments. He says, if I want to make their lives better, it's only going to be through this process of structural change that's only going to come out through politics. And in a world where money equals power very, very often, only going to come about through significant democratic change. So if you accept that this is a call to action for anyone that wants to make a more just society, which I do, then putting aside just the benefit of rotating the ins and outs and the political tranquility that tossing elections back and forth can provide, I think that there is still that imperative for structural change. And to me, one of the heartbreaking parts about the Obama presidency, this was brought home in uh, 2017, the Washington Post sends a reporter to those public housing projects that Obama worked with back in the 1980s. And he found these people who they were enormously proud of Obama. They were really frustrated with Republican obstructions, obstructionism. But they said, you know, like, listen, in our day-to-day lives, like they just haven't changed. And to me, there's something that is just so deeply sad about Barack Obama, this most talent, in my opinion, the most talented politician of his generation, someone who had a strategy that I believe that is very much mine, who was able to put into action, who became the first black president of the United States, then one election, but still couldn't bring change to those public housing projects in Chicago. And I think that putting aside the crisis of democracy today, what gets me animated, what gets me committed to this project is thinking that these people deserve our care. They deserve our attention. They deserve something better. And that I still think politics can provide it. Hmm. Well, that's interesting though. It seems like there's a little bit of a tension there or something, because if you believe as as I do as well, that Barack Obama is one of the most talented politicians of, of our generation. And even he was unable to solve the problems that motivated him the most deeply from the highest perch in the nation. Wouldn't that suggest that maybe the, those problems are not solvable by by our system the way it is currently constructed or likely to be constructed in our lifetimes? Would it suggest that? I mean, it, to me, it would almost suggest like if I cared a lot about that problem, I would go a totally different route. I would go nonprofit. I would go charity. I would like give up on the system completely and say, what can I do directly outside of electoral politics to help people in these housing projects? Um, before I respond, I just want to say apologies to anyone who can hear my beautiful five, uh, one-year-old son who's crying outside right now. <laughs> but hopefully you can't, but he's okay. Don't worry. We're not strangling a cat. It's just <laughs> a one-year-old who would really like some milk. But in response to the question, listen, like I'm upfront in the book. I strongly believe if you want to change the world, politics is one path. It is not the only path. And that there are some problems that might be more amenable to working through the nonprofit charitable space. There might be some problems that you can solve by working through the culture industry all sorts of different ways to make the world a better place. But I'd be more inclined toward the fatalistic 
option of just saying, all right, give up Obama. He tried, he failed. The lesson is never try. If I felt like Obama had perfectly executed the strategy along the way, or just began it even did like a decent job of it along the way. And I think that from some avoidable policy mistakes of the first term, combined with, you know, that first term gets a lot of attention because it is sort of the significant policymaking moment. But I think that there's a change in the second term. And going back to this Obama who runs in 2012 as I'm the defender of the middle class, Mitt Romney is a vulture capitalist circling the American dream with a hungry glint in his eye. I am on your side and he is not. If you're one of those voters, like looking at what the Obama administration in its second term gave you, there's a failed attempt for gun control. There's the Iran nuclear deal. There's climate change. There's a celebration of gay marriages victory at the Supreme Court. There's a push for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. There are stories that you could read about, including one in the New York Times, about Barack Obama having these like swanky late night dinners with Eva Longoria, Malcolm Gladwell, and the head of Netflix and Steven Spielberg, where they're talking about what his post-presidency is going to look like. There are Democrats, including Barack Obama, after the rise of Trump, saying America is already great. And there's all sort of the confrontations with sort of the lingering fallout of the financial crisis that haven't been addressed. You know, that to me doesn't look like someone who has a single-minded focus on that Rustin-esque vision. And to be clear, this is another case. It's not unique to Barack Obama. This is a problem that a lot of left-wing governments, both earlier in American history and across the world, fall into. Bill Clinton went through his own version of this. Tony Blair went through his own version of this, where sort of the desire to claim credit for what went right in your administration, the desire to say, well, if change didn't happen, it was because it was impossible. Stop talking about that. Sort of a comfort with power, the ease with which an outsider becomes a face of the establishment. All of that, I think, put Democrats in a much weaker place in 2016 than they had to be. So the possibility for a different strategy that was more committed to that original vision, to me, that is still there because it's just a frustrating part. Even if the policy legacies of that first term of the Obama administration are more significant, just in terms of legislation, then I think that the sort of cultural political shift that got underway in the second term, which also, by the way, is a time when people are saying, oh, you know what that Obama coalition is? It's a coalition of the college educated and young and diverse people. We can just, in so many words, say goodbye to the white working class. This is, you know, what Chuck Schumer says, for every voter that we lose in Pittsburgh or in the coal fields of Pennsylvania, we'll pick up another two in the Philadelphia suburbs. You know, that's not a party that seems single-mindedly focused on the strategy that brought Barack Obama into politics, which makes me think that there's more life in that strategy yet. And then also what was happening at the same time, which I think is unfairly blamed on Obama, but really just happened during his tenure was the rise of Black Lives Matter and a new you know, resurgence of Black identity politics from like 2013 to 2016. I think this is something you know, people, Republicans often want to blame this on Obama for certain comments he made, like if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. And whatever you think of those comments, I really think this is something that was going to happen independent of whoever was in the White House. I think it was much more a consequence of social media and having smartphones, being able to see videos of unarmed Black people getting shot by the police and having those, the ability to circulate that to millions of people in minutes, which is a fundamentally world-altering technology that came on board during his presidency. In any event, I think, yeah, probably all of that contributed to this general sense among white working-class voters who had voted for Obama twice that he's not really the defender, uh, he's not really our guy, or at the very least, he's handing it off, he's handing the baton off to someone that is really fully the crystallization of his flaws to the extent that he's a little bit, you know, he's having too many dinners with fancy elites that look down on us in the White House. 
the Clintons probably paid for those dinners and they've been having those dinners for like 30 years, not like three and combine that with the racial stuff. And then Donald Trump comes along and he says, well, yeah, of course, of course they're fucking corrupt. I'm the one that's been bribing them. Like uh, they're all phonies, but at least I'm going to be honest with you about that. It's much easier to see in retrospect than it was for someone like me at the time to see why there were those places like Macombs County, Michigan that went for Obama twice and then went for Trump, right? People were, I mean, people had these really reactive explanations like suddenly just racism is just randomly on the rise. But I think that was the very tempting explanation to to take at the time. But in retrospect, it seems like the story is is much more akin to the one you're painting. Yeah. And I think it also just helps to go back to both the longer historical portrait, which is saying that, listen, the struggles of Democrats with the working class in general, the white working class in particular, this isn't new. This has been going on for decades. Sort of the peak of that New Deal coalition is 1936, but there's a long falling away from that now, almost over a century. And again, that this isn't just an American story, but that you go to the UK, you see what labor's going through. You go to France, you go across much of the world, that this is sort of this repeated breakdown of old left-wing coalitions, this transformation of both sides of the electorate. This is something that on the one hand, uh, it can be, fr- it, it can be, if you're looking for arguments to give up, then the fact that this is a global process, you know, that could be an argument for just fatalism and resignation. But to me, the fact that there can still be so much change from election to election suggests that good campaigning and ultimately effective policymaking can make a difference. And it also, for anyone who feels like the specific compromise that you're being asked to, it asked to give is to just apologize for white racism and the sort of unique American sin of slavery and its descent and its as sort of institutional descendants. Well, the fact that this is happening over the world means that it can't be exclusively a racial story, right? It's inflected by race, it's shaped by race in the United States, but that it's going through countries that didn't have the particular American experience with race says that something more complicated is going on here. So does the returns from 2020, which show Democrats losing ground, not just with white voters, but with Hispanic voters, with a small but significant number of African-American men, this sort of increasing, the almost de-racialization just a bit of the electorate after four years of Trump says that you can't just tell this as a story about white supremacy unleashed, which is not to deny that Trump wasn't, you know, it wasn't just that he was using racial dog whistles as the cliche goes, right? It's a bull, it's a bullhorn, it's a poster. He's buying out the stadium, like putting up every signal that he can, that he's trying to appeal to racially resentful whites. Yes, but that is not enough to explain his victory by itself. So um, how does the fracturing of the mainstream media affect our ability to form a coalition? Because it would seem to me a change I've seen in my lifetime and certainly people older than me have seen to an even greater degree is like everyone used to be watching five channels to get their news and then they were watching 10 and then they were watching 30 and then they were getting it from their news feed. And then we were, you know, we're searching terms on Google and getting different links. Each person's getting a personalized algorithmic feed of things that I'm most likely to click on that is different, like different. It's, it's almost like a, my DNA or my thumbprint. Everyone has a unique one. Everyone's information landscape is unique. Do you think that that makes it more difficult to to form large coalitions because everyone's just sort of living in their own information world? So I think one thing that's lurking in the background is also the content of what people are clicking on rather than the fact of the billion different options that people have. So when I try and shorthand how American politics has changed over the last 70 years, one thing I like to say is that it's fair to argue that in the 1950s, Democrats are the party of the AFL-CIO, Republicans are the party of the Chamber of Commerce. By today, I think it's a lot closer to truth to say that 
Democrats are the party of MSNBC and Republicans are the party of Fox News. And of course, the disturbing vision of the future that you're opening up is a world where even the modest gatekeeping by Fox News goes away. And instead, it's truly open just to anything that people are going to say. But one thing I would point out is that institutions do have a way of rearing their heads. And in particular, the, just the incentives built into the design of the Constitution mean that it's very, very hard to see a way out of the two-party system. So like it or not, the need to build those national majorities is still going to be there, regardless of how fractured the media landscape is going to be. I think the pressing issue then is just how we deal with, especially for someone with my views on the left, how you deal with a polarized media climate where the latest cultural war controversy is going to be a guaranteed click win, is guaranteed to get clicks. And the demand for the type of policies that I think are really essential, it's a little harder to make that the sort of headline grabbing, catchy thing that people have to read about right now. I do think it can be done, though. And I think that some a lot of the success that Bernie Sanders had, especially in 2016, and AOC in her own way in 2018 and after, shows that there's a way to make that type of class-oriented politics popular. But certainly the path of least resistance is toward the sort of polarized culture war, endless clickbait fest. Which, by the way, none other than Barack Obama warned about repeatedly in his rise. It's sort of a theme of his, there's no red America, there's no blue America and audacity of hope. He wasn't saying this, it wasn't this naive celebration of a country that had transcended all differences. It was his attempt to tamp down that red versus blue forever war so that he could put forward those economic issues and those broader issues that he thought Democrats could build a majority coalition around. Yeah, well, so... I can't remember who used this phrase, but I didn't come up with it. It was Barack Obama after his presidency has become someone that is universally admired and also ignored completely in the sense that he'll, you know, he'll pop out of the woodwork every few months and basically tell the left to stop canceling people and stop being politically correct and like stop language policing because most Democrat voters don't relate to that way of mode of operating in the world. And I think it's just like he's become this sort of avuncular figure that's like, on the one hand, the greatest success story of the Democratic Party of my lifetime, like a guy, a black guy named Barack Hussein Obama in the immediate aftermath of the war in Iraq crushed it two terms in a row. And when nobody thought it was possible to elect a black president, right? No one thought the nation was ready. And the person with the worst name possible, you know, against all odds, makes it happen twice in a row and leaves office pretty well liked. I mean, relatively speaking, relatively well liked. And then his advice is is ignored. I mean, it's, it's like as if Michael Jordan comes into the NBA, destroys everything. And then when they ask him how he did it, no one wants to listen. It's an interesting dynamic to me, to say the least. Yeah. And for me, what's striking is going back, reading that manuscript from 1991, but also Dreams for My Father, also Audacity of Hope. He just sounded so much more confident back then than he does today. And I was actually, so I'm teaching a class at GW on Barack's the title is Barack Obama's America this semester. And we're going through a lot of these sources and it's been a really fun time. Our first class, I gave them a few different assignments, a few different readings from different points in his presidency from before and after. And the last thing we talked about was his uh, 2020 speech at the DNC. And they read that at the same time that we've been going through his uh, 2004 uh, presidential address. Sorry, his 2004 convention keynote address, the one that makes him a national star, international star, actually. And one thing that my students pointed out, which I think had been in the back of my mind, but hadn't really occurred to me in the same way, was just the 2020 address is so much more depressing to read. And there's something so exciting, so inspiring still about reading the 2004 speech and watching it, especially just seeing people absolutely lose their minds. And in 2020, you know, partly it is the circumstances. It was this Zoom convention. He doesn't have a live audience to play off of in the same way. But 
he just seems like he's exhausted and scared. You know, he's saying that he's someone who's like, democracy's on the ballot. But he also says, basically the point of the speech is, next generation, it is your time to take the baton. Almost as if like, I've given up, I'm glad that I could be a bridge to you, but it's your turn now. And I think that reluctance to say, actually, there was a strategy that put me here. I learned something along the way. And yes, everything didn't go the how I wanted it to in every particular, but there's still lessons here for how to make democracy work that you all should keep in mind that, that almost like self-confidence. But it's so weird because we think of Obama as, if nothing else, a sort of confident presence in his post-presidency. But yeah, dig just underneath the surface and it just seems like there's an absence there. And I don't know where it came from, but having spent a lot of time reading this guy's stuff, it does really seem to me a striking transformation. Mm. So I learned in your New York Times op-ed that Barack and Michelle's production company is behind the show about Bayard Rustin that's coming out on Netflix next year. Is that right? Yeah. Are you excited for that show? God only knows. Um, I have, I have, actually, I have a I terrible seen. suspicion that they're going to totally butcher his legacy. I have yeah, a, I would say another sort of striking change. I'm pretty sure that I forget which fancy award Obama posthumously bestows on Rustin uh, when he's president. It might be the Presidential Medal of Freedom, something mm-hmm. along those lines. Mm-hmm. So there are all these cases where, like, as that Rustin coalition is falling apart around him, you can see that. The impulse is still there with Obama. I think that, I mean, it is hard to make a movie about ideas, obviously. Uh, It's not the most cinematic thing, especially the temptation, as you know, with Rustin is going to be, there's just like so much material in the life that you want to, that it'll be so easy to focus on that and put everything else to the side. Mm -hmm. But I will say, if it ends up driving more people to the substance of what he's arguing, in my mind, that's all to the good. And that ultimately, we on like my side of the aisle, the left, have to, it's fun to go down the sort of memory lane with Obama and just now sort of remembering how excited was I was to see Obama in 2004. I was trying to put this together. I think I might have given something like 2% of my like total net worth to the Barack Obama 2008 campaign when I was yeah. just like, you know, a poor, a broke grad student who was still like, give, 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 mm-hmm. give every time. Yeah. But I think one of the lessons of the book and of the piece is that ultimately we're on our own now that we have to figure out how to do this stuff by ourselves. It's not, Barack Obama's not going to save things for us. We can't count on him anymore. That's okay. He's done enough. And I think that our obligation is to learn from the successes, learn from the failures and figure out a way that we can do better. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm totally cynical on the, um, Bayard Rustin show front. I mean, I'm picturing the writers and creators at Netflix, you know, thinking, wait a minute, he said what about affirmative action? Wait, he he was pretty much against it. This is what did he say about reparations. He was against that too. What did he say about being, I mean, there, there was a, there was a point where he was invited to contribute to some anthology of um, famous, it was either famous gay men or famous black gay people throughout history. And he declined because he didn't, this was towards the end of his life too. Toward, he didn't want to people to think of his sexual orientation primarily, like that he wanted to de-emphasize that as much as possible. And it's possible to write that away as a kind of shame induced by the era, but he also insisted it had nothing to do with that, that it was just really, he had a philosophy that came from his Quaker upbringing and from, you know, from his studies that inspired him to, you know, stand up for discrimination against all people, to focus on poverty and, you know, to defend a white professor at Yale who was like going to be fired because he was white and to take principled unpopular stands against black power movement and all kinds of stuff. I'm just picturing the Netflix writers being in that room confronted with the the number of 
quote unquote hot takes he had and just saying, well, we can't put this in the show. I mean, there's just no way. Yeah. And I will say on that subject. So yeah, I doubt that we'll get much that's great of sort of intellectual substance from the Rustin uh, movie, but you know, par for the course for Netflix, their movies suck generally. So why would this one be any different? <laughs> this is true. Any different. But I just say just, this might be a point of disagreement with us. I do think that Obama ultimately had like a subtler, more thoughtful, more effective version of that Rustin approach where he didn't mm. go on the offensive on every issue in that cultural war the same way that Rustin did. You know, mm. you know, Obama doesn't make his name by calling for an end to affirmative action. And he, I think, would be the first person to recognize, you know, yes, that it was crucial to his victory that he was able to like do well enough with white working class voters to put together a majority in a state like Ohio. But massive black turnout was also a key part of the story. And this is something he says right. that he learned from seeing like Harold Washington, how excited people in Chicago were up close, that the just unique impact that seeing yourself be represented that way, that that counts for something. And I think that there's a strong case to be made that sort of the blue state culture industry has gone overboard on that. It can't just be representation alone. You need to have more substance behind it. The phrase that Obama used to describe Washington back in the 80s, he says, despite those important symbolic victories, that that broader structural change remained out of reach. But he didn't go to the opposite extreme of saying that those symbolic victories, they don't count for anything. He's recognized that there is something important there, but that in a sort of a sense that almost this is the elected politician speaking, you want to maximize every advantage that you have so that it is okay to bring in those issues when you can frame them appropriately. And that was his point about racism and race in America. He says like, yes, racism is a central fact of American society. He says that directly in the 1991 memo, sorry, 1991 manuscript. But he says, the question is how we frame those issues, how we frame them matters. And that's where strategy comes into play. And so I think that where Rustin, I think, could just be tempted to just go too far in the other direction, that there is something of a middle course that Obama was trying to chart for himself. Definitely didn't always get it right. But I think that it's a good real world model for us to think about today. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, Rustin wasn't really trying to win elections. Yeah. Yeah. No and this, but it's someone he says this, this is in, from protest to politics is brilliant. 1965 article. It says that the future of the country depends on whether you can turn that March on Washington energy into a March mm-hmm. on Washington majority coalition. Yep. And Obama is the person who more than anyone, I feel like in American politics since then has devoted his life to bring that about. And mm-hmm. I think that learning from the way he did it, which just, we're in this backlash moment right now where it's a reaction against the Great Awakening and all the rest. And I think that elements of that are necessary and overdue. But in my squishy left way, I'm going to want to say that we don't want to go back to the sort of state of the culture industry, the state of progressive politics circa 2005. There are major gains that have been, well, that have been won along the way. And I think we should be aware of that as well while we move beyond some of sort of the excesses of the last few years. Yeah. Well, on that note, before I let you go, can let let you go give your baby some milk? Can you tell my audience where to find some of your work? Maybe your Twitter handle or a website, and and the book title one more time. Sure. So I'm uh, Tim Shank. Just Google me. It's on Twitter. It's like Tim underscore Shank. I would strongly encourage you to check out Descent Magazine, where I spend a lot of my time, and the <laughs> to doubly strongly encourage you to check out the book available at fine bookstores and online booksellers everywhere. It's called Realliners: Partisan Hacks, Political Visionaries and the struggle to rule American democracy. Okay, Tim Shank, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. If you appreciate the work I do, you can support me by subscribing directly to my website, colemanhughes.org, and sharing this episode with friends and family. As always, thank you for your support.